Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events, more about them later. If you've been paying attention to the news in the last few months, you'd have probably heard that over 1,300 unmarked graves have been found at residential schools across Canada containing the bodies of children. These schools were government-sponsored religious schools that were established to assimilate Indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. At these schools, children faced mental, emotional and physical abuse. Residential schools were only closed in 1996, meaning that for over 150 years, children were taken from their homes and culture. Many did not return, and those that did had lost their language, heritage and a sense of belonging in their communities. Today's guest is Dr. Cindy Blackstock. She's an executive director of First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, an associate professor at the University of Alberta, and professor in McGill's School of Social Work. She has 25 years of social work experience in child protection and Indigenous children's rights. Cindy is here to share her insights into residential schools, but also about her extensive research and work uh, into how Indigenous children continue to be removed from their homes and communities through the Canadian social work system. She is also going to comment on the unmarked graves that were found and the implications on Indigenous communities in Canada. My hope that is through this podcast you will gain a better understanding of what's happening in Canada and what needs to happen for there to be real change. Well, on the back of a rather long intro, uh, you would have heard so much about our next guest. And for me... There are some things in the world that are just not right. And we can listen to stories and we can do nothing. We can get involved and we can do something. Raising awareness and talking to other people is something we can do. But also, you know, as well as I do, that we can take action too. Anyway, let's get down to this because I want to know an awful lot about this subject matter, Cindy. And I'm really grateful you've taken time to come on the show and share, share this information with us so please do me a favor and remember i'm I, although i've done my research i'm no expert so let's so maybe we should go from the beginning so that people can and, and the audience can get a good understanding of, of what happened and why and and where did it stem from well it's important to go right back to the beginning that there were first nations metis and inuit communities living on this land for tens of thousands of years before we ever saw the first settlers from europe the french and the british coming here and, uh, you know, when we hear the word colonialism, some of us think, well, what can that mean? Well, the easiest way to explain it is that the settlers and the colonial powers wanted our lands and resources. Uh, but in order to do that, because we weren't really willing to give them up, they had to kind of really aggress against some basic moral th things that would be considered immoral for anybody else. Like taking the land that you don't own would be called theft, even back in, in Britain in those days or France. So... They really classified us and everything that we were as savage and everything that they were was civilized. And if you look at colonialism, that thread is all the way through. Because if you're a savage, you're not able to own land. If you're a savage, you don't know how to manage resources. Your society doesn't matter. And you definitely can't look after your kids. So the civilized group needs to do that for you. And that is really embedded in the DNA of not only Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries where the colonial footprint is in place. Now, 
being British, we have this word great in front of Britain and we have our vast history and uh, in many respects proud of it. But in recent times, there's been monuments that have been knocked down because of the slavery that took place many, many years ago. And so people are starting to think and look and maybe associate the history of these types of countries, the UK in particular and France, um, in, in a less, a less um, rose-tinted way as it would have done before. We came over to Canada. We wanted to take the land. We took everybody, classed them as savages and said, right, guess what? Get out of our way. We've got stuff to do here. Yeah. Give me an idea of the, the, the size of the population, of the indigenous population in Canada at that time. Well, you know, um, I read an article recently by some UK climate change specialists, actually, and the estimate is about 60 million in the Americas itself. And what they note in that article is that about 90% of our population was wiped out in the first 100 years between 1492 and 1592. And most of that was to deal with, with disease as well as intentional warfare and flat-out murder. And because our societies were really ones that uh, lived in a symbiotic relationship with the environment, and we were displaced by uh, really extraction-based uh, cultures that really were like the Industrial Revolution, they can actually see that degree of what they call depopulation or death. Uh, linked to climate change, that period is called the Great Dying, and that was our introduction to European society. And right now, as COVID is raging around the world, and people are looking at the tragic loss of life, um, I think they can get a glimpse into what it would have been like that first hundred years. Imagine what it would look like in your community if you lost 90% of the people all of the services we all rely on, those people with that knowledge would be gone. Uh, the grief that we would experience in our own families if we lost 90% of our family. And then from there, then the government launched a very decisive and deliberate campaign to displace us from the resources, from our lands, and from our children, from our culture, and from our languages. In the name of money. In the name of money. Uh, but it wasn't phrased that way. It was always <laughs> twisted to be civilization, right? It's kind of like the great that you have in front of Britain. You cast yourself as, as the benevolent one, and then therefore you can never do anything wrong. And that's the interesting thing about racism, is the people I'm most worried about are the people who said they're not racist. Because that if, they, if they already proclaim themselves not racist, they're never going to be accountable for acts of racism. But that's what we see in society, is that the Canadian government, the British and the French before it, really have uh, made it out to be this benevolent state. Look at everything that we did for you and you're still not grateful. Mm, okay. I feel, I feel a bit bad sitting here talking to you right now. So I, even I've got an element of guilt and I was only born in 1970. Okay. <laughs> the thing about guilt though is, like as we unpack this history, what we're also seeing is that these state actors launched a propaganda campaign against people exactly like you. Mm. They mm. didn't want people like you to know what was happening in residential schools, that children were dying in preventable ways and from horrific abuse and neglect. Because if you found out, even 100 years ago, 
we know from the record, people like you would have been appalled and you would have demanded your governments take action to fix the problem. And that's not what the government wanted. So they really kept people like you in the dark intentionally. And also the, the freedom of information didn't exist in that way like it does today either, does it? So it was much, much easier to be able to do that. Yeah, but you so, know what's interesting in Canada's story is we know that it was headline-making, Canada's conduct, it was headline-making as early as 1907 when its own chief health inspector found in these residential schools, and what residential schools are for people who don't know is Canadian government when it established Canada in 1867, uh, established these schools to remove First Nations, Métis, and Inuit kids and put them in these schools for to be Christianized and civilized and taught that everything you do, your family is uncivilized. And they in these schools, their chief medical health inspector in 1907 found that they're, they were funding these kids almost a pittance for health care compared to other kids and that the conditions in the schools were so horrible that the death rate was 25% a year, rising to 50% from tuberculosis. Um, and the just chief medical health inspector, Dr. Bryce, said, you know, if we even out the healthcare funding and improve these healthcare practices, we could save the kids. The government didn't do it. And then the headlines of the newspapers were reading absolute inattention to the bare necessities of health. Schools aid white plague. Children are dying like flies. So this was actually in the public, covered by newspapers at the time. But the Canadian government would just wait for the bad news to die off, then continue business as usual, and sadly the children continue to die as well. Okay, so let's make sure everybody understands this. First of all, how many schools were there, do you believe? There were at least 139, we know from the Truth and okay. Reconciliation Commission. So there's 139 schools of which the kids were put into, they were taken, they were pulled from their families. Yeah. At what age? Uh, generally at five. And uh, they, they used a law called the Indian Act. And so say if you were a family and you had children five and above, and you might have had a toddler or a baby, if you resisted, you would be uh, put in jail by the RCMP and they would take your toddler and baby too. Um, and you, they would also put you on a reserve and the only way you could leave the reserve is from a pass from the Indian agent. So they would control the adults. Imagine growing up in a town or living in a town where there were zero children. And all the children are away in these schools being taught to be ashamed of everything that you are. Okay, let's just make sure we take this one step at a time. There... You, you fall in love, you find, you find your partner, your soulmate, you, you then have a baby with that person, that person, that child then at five years old is taken from you and put into these schools where they're educated to think differently to how they would have been in their, uh, in their homes. And that happened from what year did it start? It started in around 1870, and it continued through to 1996. So all the way until 1996, these schools existed where these kids were essentially brainwashed into thinking completely differently so that they didn't uh, understand and couldn't comprehend why their parents would be like that, and everything else the school was teaching was good and their parents were bad, essentially. Okay. And it was a it was it was a brutal environment for them to be taught in. It, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't loving. It wasn't caring. Was it Catholic? I believe. 
Uh, Catholics ran the majority of residential schools. The federal government was commanding control over them. And then they would hire these Christian churches because that's part of being civilized is being Christian in the government of Canada's view. So the Catholics ran the majority of them, but there were other Christian denominations that also ran. Them. Okay. And so I'm a, I, you and I meet each other. We fall in love. We have a baby and we don't get a choice. And if we stand up and say, no, we're not going to tolerate this, we are then punished ourselves by being put onto a reserve where we are essentially corralled into position out of the way, okay, whilst our kids go through this journey. Now, why didn't all of those parents then say, or people knowing about it and watching it say, I'm not having kids because I don't want that to happen? Right. Well, some of them made that choice. Um, but um, you can imagine... Like if we were to create these re-education camps today and ask people to not have kids is the only solution to trying to um, deal with the problem. That's not a civilized way to do it. They, the proper action is to say to the government, stop doing this. Um, and there were people throughout the period, First Nations folks, of course, Métis and Inuit folks, even the children themselves were writing to the government pleading for them to help. And people of all walks of life, this is another thing, is that if you look at the residential schools, you're going to find people of all walks of life, like neighbors or hunters, that found that these kids were being beaten or uh, malnourished or treated poorly. And they were reporting it to the police, to the government officials, and to the churches. But the, they were the exact groups that were perpetrating this harm. So they did massive cover-ups of these reports. So... In whose interest was it to harm these children? I can understand the brainwashing. I get that. I get that. But whose interest was it to treat these kids so badly? What, what were they to gain from that? You know, it's interesting. In 1910, the senior public servant who said no to that chief medical health inspector's recommendations to save those children's lives, he actually writes a passage where he says in a letter, yeah, we know that these children are dying because they're being put into the schools at much higher rates than they would in their villages. But that alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department, being the government of Canada. And it's aimed to achieve, and here's the quote, a final solution to the Indian problem. 1910, government of Canada. That's whose interest it was. When we when we think about this and, and, and draw out comparisons, we, we naturally think about Aboriginals in Australia. It's kind of like the, the more, I suppose, the more famous and, and glaringly obvious <clears throat> difference in a country. And there's been some acknowledgement of the wrongs by the Australian government. And <clears throat> only in recent years, though, in fairness, Regardless of what happens next, which we'll talk about in a second, was it 1996 that the government started to say this is wrong? Or was it a bit before that or a bit after that? When did the government put their hands up and go, do you know what, this should never have been done? Really not until 2008 when the prime minister issued an apology. Um, 13 years ago. Yes. And... What was missing out of that, though, is what did the government learn and how did it change its behavior? That has been the missing ingredient. And that's also true for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. 
you know, sometimes these apologies are used to kind of just like get the media attention away. Like, don't look at this anymore. And instead of really a sincere effort to acknowledge and learn from the past and use that knowledge to correct the contemporary injustices, that's a missing ingredient in a lot of this apologies for residential schools stolen generations around the world. I'm, I'm, I'm getting angry as I think about this and I'm trying not to because it, the, the, it, there's such an injustice here. The acknowledgement came and there was propaganda reasons for that acknowledgement to be there. They didn't learn. So what then happened when all of those graves were found? What, that, uh, what happened, another step in the process is that survivors came forward with their truce. They told the truce of not only what happened to them, but the buried children in the residential schools. This started to happen in the 90s as the schools was closing down. And that's really what forced the Prime Minister's apology. But no one really listened to them outside of the First Nations, Métis and Inuit community. People thought, oh, that can't be true, right? <clears throat> they turned away from it. When the graves were found, that was indisputable proof. We had children in the grounds buried on these residential schools. So when Canadians looked at their TV screen and they saw all these little posts, and then they saw the radar pictures, ground radar pictures, showing the graves themselves and the bodies themselves, that confronted so them in a way that they couldn't look away. No, you can't, you can't hide or deny that. It's so shocking, isn't it? Because it's so graphic. So you've got 1,300 graves, is that correct? Uh, yes, to date, but there's more to come. Uh, keep in mind, that's just from a handful of the 139 schools. Okay, that was I was about to ask that. So out of 139 schools, a handful, and they found 1,300 graves. So this is, this is really just the beginning just the beginning. The Truth and Reconciliation the, Commission says there's at least 4,000 to 6,000 children dead, but uh, Murray Sinclair, who is the chairperson of that commission, says that's a dramatic underestimate, and he would not be surprised if the number went north of 25,000 children. So when, when, you, when you see and hear something as, as horrific as this, then, then there's an element of me that, that, that thinks about the victims that are still alive and their, their suffering and what, what they've been through. And then an element of me of, of trying to, uh, government aside, where, where's the accountability? Who, who you know, was, was, was some of the schools run better than others? And I'm sure there were differences in some of the schools for sure. But... Were the majority of them run with an iron fist in a brutal way? And if they were, why and where are those people? Even if a school closed in 1996, there would have been a dean, a principal or something, a headmaster. And so of the schools that closed in the later years, are there people that ran those schools that are still alive? Absolutely. And in fact, there are some people, a very small number, that were held criminally responsible, primarily for sexual abuse of children members of the clergy. But this has never received a full investigation. Like one of the things that shocks me a bit, Spencer, is if we thought of 
this many graves of children being found in any other member of society, it would immediately provoke a police investigation um, of what happened here, right? When you have this many dead children mm -hmm. in a ground night. That hasn't happened in Canada yet. They're talking about well whether they should investigate. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, look at the evidence, do an investigation, hold individuals, but also institutions accountable for any criminal wrongdoing that they may have done to these children. You know, one of the interesting things is when Dr. Bryce's 1907 report came forward about preventing those kids from dying, and it was in the newspapers, a lawyer of that day, a guy named Samuel Hume Blake, wrote in to say, in that Canada fails to obviate the preventable causes of death, it brings itself into unpleasant nearness with manslaughter. The question remains, was it manslaughter? And if it was, then who should be accountable? And that same question needs to be asked throughout the decades and across the schools. And we've even found like right now, the government of Canada is litigating against some of these survivors including a group of survivors from what's called St. Anne's Residential School, which is another one of these Catholic-run ones from Ontario. That school, Spencer, had an electric chair. They literally... They, they had an electric chair that the clergy made. They would put the kids in straitjackets, and they would put them in the chair and electrocute them for punishment or just for enjoyment for the clergy. Like this is how twisted these places were. The federal government is still litigating against these survivors. Like, why are they doing this? Like these people have gone through hell to put it bluntly. And yet the Canadian government is still litigating against them because it doesn't want to compensate them. It's just this kind of stuff that's just mind boggling. We, we had these, these schools. When I, when I was about six or seven years old, if I was naughty, my mum would say, I'm going to take you to the school. I'm going to take you to the school that naughty boys go to. And she would paint a horrible picture of what that school was. And there was a building, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles away from where we lived. that was an old derelict, or looked like a derelict building, looked haunted to me. And she would pull up when I was naughty and she'd take me out the car. She said, come on, we're going in. I'm going to leave you here. And it was terrifying as a kid for me to think about, like terrifying. And I would beg and plead and promise and do whatever I did. And then it would last, I'm sure, six or seven months before I you know, was naughty again. But it was very, very frightening, very frightening. And that was make-believe. What you're describing is something that I only ever dreamt about in my worst, worst nightmares. Yeah, that was really real. And it happened to thousands and thousands of kids through no fault of their own. Yeah, and the, they would be, when children, some of these children were murdered uh, by the clergy, and what they would do is they would often awaken some of the other children in the middle of the night to go and dig the grave. And that's why... That's why the survivors knew that the children were there, were buried there, because some of them had dug the graves of these children. And like that's, that is the kind of thing that happened in these schools. And some people say, well, you know, we like, we have some 
uninformed politicians who always say, oh, well, somebody must have had a good experience. And yeah, some people did, but that, like, you could say that of any human rights tragedy, there's always one or two that had a good experience. But that doesn't take away from the fact that these things were re-education camps where thousands of children died. And all of them were subject to being taught that everything that their family was and their ancestors were, were shameful, savage. This really makes me angry as I think about it and I wanna make sure I ask you the right questions. You have, you call them First Nation, we wouldn't call them First Nation, we would probably refer to them as Inuit. Um, uh, would that be would that be Inuit in northern okay? Canada? So what we have we have three groups of indigenous peoples in Canada. Inuit are from northern Canada. First Nations. There are uh, 633 of them, speaking about 40 plus different languages. They're uh, uh, south of the 60th parallel. Yeah. yeah. And um, then on top of that, we have a group of very distinct culture called Métis, which is uh, an indigenous culture. But this was also has a blend of some of the European uh, ancestors as well. So it's it's those groups of children that were in these schools. What's the current population approximately of these people as a percentage of the total population of Canada? Canada. Right. So Canada roughly has about 35 million. About 1.2 are uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit people. Okay. And another okay. important thing, Spencer, to know, and this is what I tell Canadians, you know those inequalities in healthcare funding that Dr. Bryce pointed out in 1907? They're still going on. And so is that Indian Act that forced those kids into the schools. So that same act is still on the books in Canada today. And what happens with that is uh, it only applies to the First Nations group, that 633 south of the 60th parallel. It, it literally allows the Minister of Indian Affairs to say whether your baby is status or non-status First Nations, Indian. And if they're status, they recognize them for certain uh, land rights. But if they're non-status, they don't. And they also uh, regulate these reserves still exist. And they replaced our traditional governance systems with these Indian Act ban council systems. And they said, well, the federal government will fund services on reserve, public services, but they do so to a far lesser level than everyone else. And in 2019, and this is based on a, you know, decades old uh, legal battle against the Canadian government, a legal court in Canada found that Canada's ongoing racial discrimination against First Nations kids in the provision of public services results in unnecessary family separations at greater levels than a residential school, harms to children, and the deaths of children. And it ordered Canada to stop that behavior in 2016. We're now at 19 non-compliance and procedural orders against the Canadian government. So you can see this pattern of behavior that resulted in residential schools is piling up on the hopes and dreams of kids today. And that's why I think the Canadian government likes to talk internationally and domestically and say, oh, don't look now. Look at this dark chapter. We feel really bad about that. But we don't want you looking at the way we're treating kids today. Talk, talk to me about the survivors. 
you've, you've obviously been exposed to a fair number of them. How, how are they coping and what support are they getting? You know, when I talk to the survivors, many of them will talk about the, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, feeling hungry all the time, um, feeling ashamed and worried about their brothers or sisters. Like they would talk about their, their just imagine, like for children, one of the most sacred times is going to bed, right? We all have those rituals, putting them to bed, reading them their story, they have their favorite stuffed animal or whatever. For these kids, they had none of that. They were in rows of beds and they would be asleep, but they wouldn't fall asleep right away because they were so scared that someone would come to get them in the middle of the night to sexually abuse them or hurt them. And they would, the children would say the worst wasn't that I was going to be hurt. It was that my brother or sister would be hurt and taken away. And I would hear the screams in the next room. They also talk about, they said the worst things that happened to us are the things that never happened to us. No one ever said, I love you. No one ever said they, they held us when we were scared. No one ever um, said we were special. And that's the way that their childhoods were. And then to come out of that, and despite all the horrors, actually share their truths with people in official settings. Like imagine having to talk about this on TV or in front of thousands of people, like what happened with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, although they did it very sensitively there. They did that through their tears, Spencer, so that their grandchildren wouldn't have to go through it. So they told the truth and Canadians said, oh, that sounds terrible, but that couldn't have really happened. And it wasn't until the, literally the skeletons in the closet are confirmed that Canadians start to see it, but they're not making that next jump to say, you know what? Something very similar is happening on our watch right now to the grandchildren. These survivors told their stories so that the injustices would stop. And yet the injustices have not stopped. They continue to pile up on their grandkids. And that's where Canadians, I think, really owe these survivors a duty. We at a minimum, we have to stop it. How? Well, one of the things is, is that uh, we're having a federal election, uh, likely in the next couple of months. And I've said to people, I'm printing out that TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. I don't care what political party you come from. You come knocking on my door wanting my vote, I'm going to say, which of these have you personally been involved in implementing? Are you going to stop litigating against those survivors who were shocked in that electric chair? Are you going to stop underfunding every public service for First Nations kids so that they're not dying unnecessarily or being separated from their families at greater rates in residential school? If they can't answer those questions, they're not getting my vote. The government has relied on the Canadian government, uh, public not knowing or hearing about it and turning quickly away. And in fairness, the public, the public is rarely listened to by any government that's in majority, but they always have to listen to us in the voting booth. Governments do not create change, they respond to change. And that's what needs to happen here. The Canadian public needs to say stop. And the international community plays a role in that and really taking off the rose-colored glasses about Canada 
and saying, if we really want to be a friend and neighbor, we have to make sure that they stop this injustice. Their own courts are ordering them to do it, and they're not doing it. There's a lot of people in, in the Middle East where I'm based that uh, change their nationality by becoming Canadian, whether they're from India, Pakistan, Iran, and stuff like that, because Canada's very welcoming and open to people that want to uh, change their status. And they do have rose-tinted glasses on it they do think about Canada in a way that is only positive and you know and better than anything they can imagine and they don't know about this and there'll be people listening to this episode that are from the non-residential Indian community non-residential Pakistani community other Arab countries that when they hear this they'll be mortified of what they're hearing you have you say elections can make a difference and you've got just over a million First Nation people of 35 million people in the country, you have to rally the non-Indigenous, non-First Nation numbers. And obviously not everybody votes, but you're gonna have to rally enough. And do you get lots of support already? Or is that a real challenge? I think it's still a real challenge. The support has been building, thanks to the survivors having the courage to say that truth. I think what happened is that incrementally the knowledge piled up on the Canadian consciousness in a way that they couldn't turn away anymore. But, and I'm also really happy to see finally that children are being taught about First Nations, Métis and Inuit people and residential schools in school now. And so those kids are growing up with this knowledge and therefore they're in a far better position to say, this is what's going on now is wrong. Like why can't First Nations kids get clean water? Why are they getting less money for education? Why aren't they getting the same help to recover from this multi-generational trauma from residential schools that they deserve? They're asking those questions, but they're doing more than that. They're actually writing to the prime minister and demanding action as children. We need to see that movement grow out into their parents, into their grandparents, their aunts and uncles and neighbors. That is, uh, that's what needs to happen. Otherwise, I'm afraid this will be another thing that a future government will look back and say, oh, that's a dark chapter in our history. Do you think it's going to take another generation to really, really make it work? I hope not, because there will be a lot of First Nations, Métis and Inuit kids who will die or lose their childhoods again. You know, my goal, uh, Spencer, is that uh, we raise a generation of First Nations, Métis and Inuit children that don't have to recover from their childhoods and a generation of non-Indigenous kids who never have to say they're sorry. That's my goal. And if we, governments do all kinds of complicated things, ending racial discrimination against these children is not that hard. There's only one race, it's called the human race. There is nothing else to consider. And these are children, right? This isn't, this, these are little kids. This is what all of your listeners will be able to understand. Think about your own child. What if the government decided they weren't worth the money? They weren't worth the same level of education, health care, um, uh, water, sanitation. They're just not worth the money. Not because of their character and not because of your character, but because of who you are. Just wrong. That's what's happening in this country. Okay, so... If I was, uh, let's say all of our listeners here right now, we're in, we're in, a, in a stadium, a theatre, wherever it was with us all. And they said, what can we do? Let, let us try and do something. Give, give us an action. Let us take and make an action. Let's, let's try and do something here. What can we do? Give, give us, in no particular order, give us three things that we can do. 
One is uh, get onto Twitter, just to at Justin Trudeau. He's our prime minister. Tweet him. Say that the international community's heard these stories, and you they know that they can you can stop these injustices. Implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. So just send a, as a member of the human community around the globe. Tell the Canadian government you care. Um, the other thing, go onto our website fmcaringsociety.com. We have seven free ways for everyone to make a difference, no matter where you are in the globe, and it's free of charge for First Nations kids. The third thing that you can do is really begin that education process yourself. Read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. It's available in French and English, and uh, you can also check out YouTube videos and uh, listen to the testimonies of the survivors. And uh, you too can be part of this learning of the international community. The other thing that we need to learn also, just I think more globally, is how do we stand up in friendship with one another? You know, it's good when we have something where we can rally around the world and feel good about it, like a sporting event. Uh, but actually, I think our real test of our humanity is when one of us is not treating its own people in a respectful way. How does the rest of the human community rally together? to make sure that those human rights and that dignity of all those persons is respected. And, um, you know, it's not just a third world problem. Sometimes Canada likes to think of it that way. We have our issues, and they are really severe when it comes to children. And all of you can help. Fantastic. A lot of people think about what the differences are between people, and they focus on what's different about one person to another. I think it's much easier to identify what's the same or what's similar. Because in nearly all respects, we are, we are so similar. We're all similar. I've lived in 10 different countries. And in every country I've been to, people say to me, but it's different here. And I go there and I'm like, okay, fine, no problem. I understand. Okay, the food's different. Got it. Okay, understand. But nothing else is different. People want to be loved. They want to love. They want to have a safe environment to live in. They want to have their family around them. They want to be successful. They want to have a fulfilling career. Okay. And, and they want to have friends and they want to enjoy stuff. You know, everybody wants the same thing. And actually, we're all the same. So why do we try and break everybody down to be different because of this, that or anything else? So the work that you're doing is fantastic. It really is. And I'm, I'm, before this, this episode, I read and I watched. And I was kind of like, yeah, this is an important subject. And you made me angry as I was listening to you today. Because, you know, when, when things are just not right and they're just not fair and you see stuff like this, something must be done. Something has to be done. And it's the power of these things that you've just mentioned, these tips that you've given us and the efforts that we all make as we listen right now and watch the show right now that, that, that can bring a difference to this. And so if you are living in the Middle East or in the UK and you know somebody who lives in Canada or you know a Canadian or you have a family member that's moved and emigrated to Canada, okay, I want you all to talk about this, all right? It's really important that you talk about this. You all know who Justin Trudeau is, okay, as we've just been speaking about right now inundate him everyone if you don't have twitter why not you're mad where you've been hiding under a rock um 
<laughs> and it's not just Twitter. Do it on any any social media platform you want. You know, he's he's out there. Make an effort because to see one thousand three hundred kids so far dying in schools where they were there meant to be brainwashed. The only thing I can assimilate this to is the MK Ultra, which was established by the CIA many years ago, where they brought children in and abused them. They brainwashed them to turn them, actually to turn them into killers. So they brainwashed them in such a way where they didn't value life at all and they could be programmed to do something. It was based on something that went on with the Hitler Youth, okay, back before the Second World War. And so this brainwashing to take them away from what they have a right to and then the maltreatment and then the murder in some cases. And we're only at 1,300 and there's 139 schools and you're talking about thousands. It may end up being tens of thousands. My last thing to say to any of you right now before we leave this podcast, last thing to say, would you allow your kids to be treated like that? Because I wouldn't. I'd die for them. Cindy, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. It's been fantastic talking to you. I'd like to... I'd like to track some of this progress with our audience as well. If people want to reach out to you and say, Cindy, 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 I've got a question. I want to help. I want to dig a bit deeper. Point me in the right direction. What would be a good way for them to do that? Well, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at, at CBlackST. Um, and also check us out. You can reach us at the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. We're an independent organization. We don't get government money. So we're able to speak out the truth, and, uh, and that's why we do. We, we really want to stand up for these kids and with their communities, and, and we need your help to do that. So Fantastic. Okay, guys, you got that. So that's at Cindy B. What did you say? BT? Uh, C Black ST. C Black ST. All right, guys, get that. We'll put that link in the bio as well for that so the people can do that. Cindy, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you coming and talking openly and candidly with me about a subject that really is just not on. Uh, and I appreciate the, the work that you've done and how brave you've been over the years to stand up yourself and you know fight for this cause because it's definitely something that's very important. Thank you. Well, you know, our role as adults, most important is to stand up for kids. All of us. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.